about 10 years ago, I got together with a young Christian youth worker, and he wanted to know what my spiritual rhythms were. He wanted to find out how I did my spiritual life. And I remember telling him that ministry is not easy and that uh, I worked about 73 hours a week uh, starting Lakeland Community Church. Now, I thought he would be impressed with that I'm working 73 hours a week because I thought people should be dying on the hill in sacrificing and serving for Jesus. But as I said those words, his face got all contorted like he just ate something terrible. And I realized in that moment that he was not impressed and and instead uh, he was really asking to himself, do I want to be like this man? And the answer came back very clear to him, no, do not imitate this man. I thought of Paul in his letters in the New Testament where he says, be imitators of me. And I realized in that moment that I was doing Christian discipleship all wrong. But the worst of it is, is that I burned out. I was alone as a pastor. I didn't have a personal life. My home life was not good. My wife was not happy with me. I was a brand new parent and we were in a $4 million building campaign trying to get the church into its own home. And so I took some time off. I hired another pastor. I gave away some things that most senior pastors would never even imagine giving away. I gave away the majority of the preaching. I gave away uh, controlling resources, money, staff, facilities. I had to in order to survive. It was the only way I was going to continue in ministry. The greatest change when I came back from my time off was that I began to be more present with other people. I learned a new way of prayer, of just simply abiding in God's presence. And I began to rethink what it means to do discipleship. What I wanted discipleship to be was teaching other people how to pray and how to be in God's presence all day long. I made a promise to Jesus that I would spend 40 days a year in solitude and silence, just like he did in the wilderness. The next spring, right after Easter, I took about 12 Lakelanders up to a monastery in the middle of Missouri to teach them what I had been experiencing about prayer and being alone with God. During our time at the monastery in solitude and silence, I asked people to go for a walk or to just simply have a divine waste of time, skip stones across the lake, or go out and look in the orchard, or watch the windmills, or watch the clouds go by. Anything where they could open up their heart to the voice of God. Something is terribly, terribly wrong with the way we are living life. It's as though busyness has become the disease of the soul. Busy human is an oxymoron. And Jesus told his followers, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And again, Jesus said, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your lifespan? I drive through the neighborhoods and I look into people's beautiful landscaping in their backyards and it seems like one of the favorite things people love to do is create a little garden spot and they put a bench or a chair out there with some rocks and flowers and shrubbery and a fountain or a bird bath. And there's one thing missing. There's never anybody sitting in those chairs and benches. You see, I think people have the idea of solitude and silence and a restful place in life, but we never have the capacity or the time to actually be able to go and sit in those little spots where we know our heart and our soul wants to be. We have to ask ourselves, 
Am I living the life the way God intended human beings to live? You and I were made to walk in a garden in the cool of the afternoon with our Creator, our Maker. This is why we have to go on retreat. This is why we have to make retreat. We have to make retreat so we can learn the disciplines of how to listen for the voice of God. name is Jason, and I am one of the uh, youth guys around here at Lakeland. So if you're new or visiting, first of all, welcome. Um, but you have come on guest speaker day. I know that's always hard, but it's a good uh, excuse to come back next week. You can hear the regular guys. So, um, but mostly just welcome. When I was 10 years old, I signed up for martial arts classes, and we had these tests that we'd do um, It was a test to see how our skills were progressing and whether or not we were ready to move up in rank. And the way they were conducted was sort of a ritual or a tradition. It was always done the exact same way in the exact same order. And one of my favorite parts of this test came at the end. You'd get called up by a panel of black belts. And I mean, these guys and gals were just absolutely legends to us, you know. And you get to stand there face to face and they'd ask you questions about martial arts. And always at the end, they would ask this question. What are the five tenets of our taekwondo? And I still remember them today. Modesty, etiquette, self-control, indomitable spirit, perseverance. We would respond with these words. At the time, I didn't think a whole lot about this ritual. It was mostly just cool to get to stand in front of one of the black belts. But looking back, I can see how extremely formational this was to stand in front of these people I valued, to say modesty, etiquette, self-control, dominable spirit, perseverance. Without me realizing it, these words were becoming deeply embedded into my identity. And I think it's like that with rituals or traditions. While we're doing them, they don't seem all that special. Sometimes they can feel maybe a little weird, old-fashioned. Churches like the Catholic Church, they do rituals all the time. Sometimes we kind of look at that and we say, well, aren't they kind of just going through the motions? Isn't that the path towards sort of a dead faith? I've thought that. Well, I don't know how wrapped up you are on social media, but there's a video that's gained some steam on the internet. And it's of a ritual from New Zealand known as the haka. And for the old New Zealanders, the haka was a war dance. It was a sign of courage and strength. But it's also a very violently expressive warning that if we have this battle here today, we are going to slaughter your side. And it's supposed to impart fear into the enemy. Well, these days, the haka is less about battle and bloodshed. But the sense of courage and the sense of pride and the community the people, the peopleness of it has remained. According to many New Zealanders, most of the time, it's a ritual they actually don't think all that much about. It's something that they do before rugby games, a sort of pre-game demonstration. But I'm going to show you a video clip, and I think that you'll see that behind 
what has got lost as a pregame rugby demonstration is something a little more meaningful. I will caution you, this isn't our culture, this is someone else's culture. So you're going to see some, some faces that are strange. You're going to see some tongue lashing that is a little peculiar. But before you judge them too harshly, uh, consider what it would be like for a New Zealander to come over here and maybe go to a Green Bay Packers game. If you're friends with a Packers fan, you know what I'm talking about, where they wear cheese on their head. My friend dresses all the dolls. and It's just, you know, they'd look and say, well, these Americans are kind of strange. So try to get past some of the cultural differences as you watch it. It's not normal normative for us to hear in suburbia. But I think if you can get past the cultural differences and watch the bride, you'll see that this ritual actually has some kind of deeper meaning. So we're going to play the video now and keep your eyes on the bride. We'd all like to be a part of a people that's got our back. I think that's what they had going on in that video. I think that's why it moved them. It's strange to us, but clearly for these New Zealanders, there's something much deeper going on. After this went, video went viral, it's interesting, the bride and groom did an interview. And in the interview, they said they knew some people were organizing a haka for their ceremony, but they didn't realize how much it was going to mean. Obviously, the groomsmen put that together. But if you notice, the wait staff jumps in. Eventually, a bridesmaid jumps in, unplanned, and then the bride herself. They get swept up in it because they realize this pregame rugby de- demonstration has actually done something to their identity without them knowing it. Brought them together as a people. And it's like that with rituals. It's like that with traditions. We don't always understand their deeply formational power until much later. And I tell you stories of rituals today because it's the Sunday of Lent, first Sunday. In a way, Lent is the Christian haka. It's a season that began this week at Ash Wednesday, and it's filled with rituals and traditions and prayer and listening and fasting and feasting if you're doing it right. It will end Easter Sunday, and like most traditions, it identifies us as a people. And it shapes our thinking. It provides an anchor to the past that gives wisdom for our future. But also like rituals and traditions, its transformational power is not always immediately evident. And so it risks becoming a pregame rugby demonstration, an act of dead faith, a lost art. And in a fast-paced loud culture like we live in. This can be disastrous. I love American culture. I love movies. I love sports. I love Netflix. I love video games. I love technology. I love funny stuff on social media. I actually love being connected to all knowledge at all times, you know? Just anything you want to know, just Google it. But at the same time, Its numbing effect on my life is absolutely undeniable. All day long, I'm being screamed at by advertisers trying to sell me their products and politicians trying to land my votes. I swim in a sea of opinions on the right way to raise my kids and to lose my tummy fat and to build my dream home and to diagnose any number of crazy illnesses that I might have at any time that I'm just completely aware of. 
And there isn't much patience or grace in any of these messages. It's all up and to the right. Faster and stronger, richer, more, smarter, prettier, healthier, newer. Up and to the right. And if you aren't keeping up, they act like you'll be lost forever, insignificant or ruined. If you aren't a slave to your ambition, a slave to your ambition, something might be wrong with you, they say. They'll lean in and whisper, you might be lazy. And although I'd like to think otherwise, I have to admit that I'm not immune to these things. Sometimes, and probably actually more often than not, the loud voice of God, the loud voice of society, can drown out the voice of God. I'm prone to distraction. I seek life. I wake up every day like, today I'm going to seize life. But as the one that breathes life becomes more and more silent, I find myself surrendering to endless distraction instead. Rather than seeking things that bring joy, I settle on endless compulsions and whatever seems to move me up and to the right, at least from one moment to the next. And of course, while this is all going on, I'm not actually aware of any of it. And maybe you're like me. Famed Christian author C.S. Lewis beautifully expresses this sentiment. I love this. Uh, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I really like that quote because I think it gets to the heart of a very serious problem. Rather than waiting and fixing our eyes on a holiday at sea, we reach. We reach for what's readily in our grasp. We reach and end up settling for much less. I think Lewis is right, and sometimes I wonder if all these compulsions aren't ultimately rooted in some kind of fear, like most things, fear. On some deeper level, we all have a fear that God might hold out on us. I don't know how often you sit and examine your own thoughts, but I bet if you did, you'd be surprised by how much they're rooted in fear. This is certainly true for me. At some level, I'm afraid that God won't really have my back, that functionally, I'm on my own. And I hear these thoughts from others all the time. It's when we say things like this. Everything in me wants a change in my career, but I'm too scared to let go or fearful of what might happen. And God might hold out. I want to wait, I want to wait for the right person, but I'm worried I'll just end up alone. And God might hold out. My family is coming apart with all this busyness, and keeping up with the Joneses is certainly harder than I thought. But if my kids aren't in these sports and doing all these things, won't they fall behind or be uncool? God may be holding out. I want to be generous. But I don't know when it's all going to come crashing down on me. It feels like any moment sometimes. And God might hold out. I'd love to take an adventure but I might get hurt, something bad could happen. God might hold out. If you've had these thoughts, 
They're quite legitimate. They really are. They're legitimate fears, and you're not alone. It could be argued that this goes all the way back to creation. It could be argued that the original sin Adam and Eve committed was rooted in the fear that God might be holding out on them. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said we don't eat from. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on here. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. If you don't know the rest of the story, Adam and Eve end up believing that lie, that God is holding out on them, and they grasp for the fruit. And we've all been eating from the same tree, grasping for the same fruit, believing the same lie ever since. Peter Lightheart, theologian, president of the Theophilus Institute, he makes a compelling case that the biblical fast, the Lenten fast, is actually based in, the, in this creation narrative. And his take on original sin is that humankind was trying to seize hold of the feast without the necessary preparatory fast. Our fear, God might be holding out of fear, that God might be holding out on us. They reached rather than wait. They reached rather than trust. And just in Genesis 129, we see the fast, the feast that's been prepared. Here's the feast. Then God said, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree given, to you, given them to you for food. To all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes. I give you whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. God looked over everything he had made, and it was good. So very good. Everything he had made. But he also gives them a fast. One prohibition. Genesis 2. God took the man and set him down in the garden to work the ground and keep it in order. God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. The moment you eat from that tree, you're dead. According to Lightheart, it's important to note that God didn't tell them not to eat from the tree because it was bad. And it wasn't some sneaky, evil tree with which he intended to trick them. It was the tree of knowledge. God-level knowledge. And it was simply too much for them. Maybe with some maturity, but at this point, it was most certainly too much for them. Much like everything God makes, it was good. Explosively good. So explosively good that they weren't yet ready to handle it. Maybe they grasped too soon. Maybe they grasped before they were ready. He then goes on to argue that before Jesus began his ministry, he actually relived this creation account. The full story is recorded in Matthew chapter 4, but I'm going to give you a condensed version. Jesus enters a world that is no longer a garden, but a howling waste. And before starting his ministry to set things right, he goes into the wilderness for a 40-day fast, the fast which Lent is based. 
And in that wilderness, just like in the original garden, the serpent comes to test him, to tempt him with the idea that God is holding out. The serpent offers three things, three things for Jesus to grasp for. You're hungry. Eat this now. You, you Jesus, you should be famous. Jump off this temple. God will save you, and the people can see who you really are. Bow down to me. No cross or self-denial required. Everything you want, you can have it right now. Right now, Jesus, grasp for it. But Jesus responds with three very direct answers. He says this, The word of God is more valuable than bread. God is to be trusted, not tested. And my heart, it's his. And it's his alone. And this time the devil flees. When God came to earth before beginning his ministry, he ventured into the desert and replayed the Genesis account. But this time, God was trusted. Jesus refused to believe that God was holding out. He refused the ideology of up and to the right. He refused to replace the giver of life with counterfeit compulsions. And after this time in the desert, Jesus returned to society and he showed what real compassion looked like. He demonstrated a new and radical love, a new and radical forgiveness. He dared to forsake the compulsion of up and to the right and instead took a very downward path. Philippians chapter 2. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. But in this, he demonstrated the way of God, not as one who holds out, but instead prepares us for an unlikely feast. A feast that is obtained not up and to the right, but at the bottom. Because after Jesus took his great descent, even into death, it says this, if we continue reading Philippians 2. Here's God's response. Therefore God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did everything he could to make himself low. Ultimately, a criminal's death on a cross. And on his way down, he found himself at the very top. That's our God. That's the fundamental promise of God. It's the promise that reconciles what I've always felt were seemingly disparate teachings from Jesus. In John 10.10, where he promises life and life to the full. But then in Matthew 16 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. Life to the full or the cross? An instrument of death. Which is it? The way of God is not one or the other. 
The way of God is a beautiful mystery where one actually, in a strange way, leads to the other. Ignore the intense pressures of up and to the right. Deny yourself and see if you don't end up inheriting the whole thing, the whole earth. This is the path of Jesus. The Lenten journey is a way to step onto that path, or if you've wandered, return. When we participate in the Lenten journey, we too relive this story with Jesus. We reflect upon our time in the garden. We reflect upon the lesser fruit for which we grasp. We reflect upon our ambitions as Adam and Eve's and our compulsion to move up and to the right at all times. But also in Lent, we follow the way of Jesus. We follow him down, down, down onto a cross. But not out of some self-mutilation or rejection of your identity because you're a worthless person. No, it's the opposite. We go down as deeply valued people who understand we are fasting in preparation for a feast. This is why the Lenten journey is twofold. You're supposed to fast for six days of the week. It's during these days that we give something up. Again, not because it's bad. In fact, it's best if it's something good. But because we want to look past that lie that that's the it, that everything is now, that everything is up and to the right all the time. We don't want to get fooled into thinking that everything we're grasping for fits into the main thing. We don't want to settle on mud pies when holidays at sea await. But on the seventh day, we feast. On Sundays, we feast. After letting those things die, we take them back but now with resurrected life. We remember that although Jesus descended into death on a cross, he was resurrected to new life as ruler of all. And that he's offered that to us. He's extended the offer to you and I. Now this can all sound rather lofty, and philosophical at times, theological. The idea that taking a path of downward mobility, suddenly springing forth new life, can feel like such a distant reality. It can feel like our job then as Christians is just to kind of sit around, bored, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the future promise of heaven. But I think we can actually see tangible signs of those promises sprouting up all around us in very practical ways. With a little noticing, we already see signs where downward mobility, where fasting leads to more fulfilling feasts. Peter Lightheart explains this really well. He says this, Whenever Solomon, rich King Solomon, warns us about the dangers of rapidly acquired wealth, he is warning us not to be Adam's. He's reminding us to keep the fast little by little, piece by piece, waiting and not grasping, saving ahead of borrowing. That is Lenten economics. And Lenten sexuality is like unto it. Lent teaches us to renounce the two-dimensional, bodiless sex that we can so easily grab on the web, in magazines, or on screens. Lent teaches us to wait. But Lent also shows us that we don't wait out of prudish, 
out of prudish hatred of sex, but out of admiration for its mysterious potency. Sex is so pleasurable and made that way, so obsessively delightful and made that way, that we have to have our senses trained before we can handle it well. Abstinence is the fast that prepares us for the feast of marriage. Lenten sexuality honors creation by insisting we take time to get ready. Lenten politics is also the politics of patience and restraint. History is littered with the rubble and severed limbs left behind by tyrants who seized power they were incapable of using well. Everywhere we turn, the world tells us not to keep the fast. Everywhere we turn, the world tempts us to be Adams and Eves. But few things provide a better counter to that temptation than a diligent, thoughtful observance of of Lent and the cultivation of a Lenten way of life. How many tangible stories are there where people have stopped grasping, stopped listening to the pressures of up and to the right, taken a seemingly downward path, and yet at the end found joy? Tangible examples. How many people have said that it's when they contracted a deadly disease or cancer that they finally started living? Perhaps too many. How many people have said that they cut something from their lives that seemed risky at the time, but has actually led to increased joy, benefits they had been too blind to see or too impatient to see before. I asked our worship team to find someone in the congregation that might have a practical, tangible story like this, a sign, a sign of a promise of God coming through when much is risked. Not in some future heaven, but crashed into our present earth as it is in heaven. It didn't take them long, and I'd like to invite that person to share their story with you, that it might be a tangible sign of the beauty and the hope found in the Lenten way. Let's welcome Jody Turnbow. Hi, my name is Jody Turnbow, and this is my story. I was an elementary teacher, and then I became an administrator. About two and a half years ago, I felt a stirring in my heart, but couldn't figure out what it was or what it meant. The words, be still, I am your God, kept popping in my mind. I started to feel a discontent in what I was doing. It was a weird feeling because I was, I'd always dreamed of climbing to the top. I had plans to get my doctorate, get to central office, become an HR director, become an assistant superintendent, if not the superintendent. Yet the dream seemed to be fading, and my heart also seemed to be changing. I kept telling myself, this is what I'm working towards. This is what I have told people I am going to do. This is who I am made to be. I was also really good at my job, but just something wasn't right. I seemed to be getting more and more unhappy the further I got into my career. Not with the people I was around, but with myself. And then all of a sudden, I realized I didn't even know the person who I had become. 
I was reaching for the dreams I had set for myself and not the plans that God had made for me. I was telling God I would follow him and do his will, but what I was really saying was, I will follow you as long as your goals fit into my dreams and the plans I've done. I remember walking into the house and telling Matt I'm going to resign from my job. Instead of freaking out, Matt simply said, like, without another job lined up? And I said yes, and he said okay. I wrote my resignation letter that Friday, that day, a Friday, and handed it in on Monday. This was scary but freeing at the same time. Throughout my conversations with people, God walked alongside me. Where I thought there would be anger and resentment, there were tears and hugs and people telling me they were proud of me and the decision that I had made. That same week, I got a text from my brother-in-law who works for the University of Missouri. He told me about a job that had been created for my area and asked if I was interested. He had no idea that I had resigned from my job earlier that week, and I had a new job within two weeks of quitting administration. God had me work on being still for two years. He placed people in my life to help me with this concept because it was totally foreign to me. Throughout this process, I was learning to trust God and his plans. The job I took ended up being something I thought I would never do. I now work with high school students. I remember saying, I will never work with students higher than fifth grade. It also hit me that I am now serving in middle school (laughs) upstairs, so God is really funny. (laughs) These students are in special education, and I get to help them figure out what they want to do after high school. It's an ongoing process, and I get to build one-on-one relationships with these amazing humans. God put me in a spot that stretched me and showed me that I have so much more talent than I had ever imagined. When first taking this job, it was a job that allowed me to be home more, not as many evening activities, not as much stress and anxiety. Now that I have been in this job for six months, I realize it has taught me more about being intentional and finding a balance between work, home, and play. It helped me find my true identity, which is in God, not my occupation. We seem to live in a different pace than we did before. It's still crazy with three kids and activities, However, Matt and I look back and we realize we were numb from the busyness. I have no regrets about this decision. God has truly blessed us by taking this leap of faith. I left a great office staff. We were like a family. However, God blessed me with amazing colleagues in my new job. People grounded in their faith and on a journey to find a new, a more balanced life. This doesn't go to say that there hasn't been changes in our lives and rough patches. I took a $24,000 pay cut, and learning to live with that pay cut was a little rough, but not as rough as we thought it would be. There were sacrifices that we had to make, but when we looked at the big picture, it was totally worth it. I went through a transition period that was tough. I felt like a huge part of my identity had been lost. I floundered a bit, and I tried to take care of it myself. But God, like he always seems to do, he was waiting for me to realize that he would lead me through it, if I would allow it. God's funny like that, a God that is powerful and almighty, but also a God who will patiently wait on you, even if it is a long time. My name is Jody Turnbow, and this is my story.
Thanks, Jody. In the practice of Lent, we begin to break free of the need to always move up and to the right, like Jody broke free. We begin to break free of the need to grasp at things as if God isn't preparing a much sweeter feast. We renounce the ways of Adam and Eve and instead join the path of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, and although this kind of information can be helpful, it's really not enough without the ritual, without the tradition, without the practice. There is transformational power in ritual and tradition. Sometimes we just can't see it until later. I've talked to a lot of Christians that say they don't need this sort of mumbo-jumbo. I was one of those Christians for most of my Christian life till Dan finally convinced me otherwise. We'd sit around and we say things like this. It should be more spontaneous. It should be from the heart. I will also say that most of these people, myself included, through those 18 years while doing ministry, have rather feeble prayer lives. And ultimately, they end up saying things like this. You know what? I must not really believe any of this. Because if I did, I'd want to pray all the time. I'd want to climb into God's Word. I would want that. So I must not just believe any of it. But I don't think that's the problem at all. I think it's more healthy to admit that we are Adams and Eves, so prone to grasping, so easily distracted, so willing to settle for mud pies. I think we do better to take up the practices of Jesus. I think we do better to take up the ways of Jesus, the way of Lent, what he did before he began his ministry. Going to the desert to fast. Living out compassion. Taking a path downward. And receiving in turn the joy of heaven. If you want to give this Lenten season a try, we have a simple prescription this year, and I love it. For this year, here's what Lakeland is prescribing. First, stop. Stop a media source, particularly news media. Silence a voice of fear or compassion that might be in your head. Start. Start reading the Gospel of Luke. We suggest a chapter a day. There's only 24 chapters, so you're going to run out. That's okay. Find something else to read from the Bible after that, but one chapter a day from Luke. Replace the voice of media with the voice of the one that gives life. Part three, give. Random acts of kindness. Write a check. Pay for some stranger's lunch. Live out the compassion of Jesus. And then finally, receive. Take a post-it note and write one-word gratitudes and stick them on the kitchen wall. Each person should have 40 post-its on the wall by the time Easter rolls in. It's kind of crazy. But receive gratitude. You're writing what you're grateful for, but you will receive it as gratitude. It's weird, but it's happening. Just since beginning in this journey of Lent for this year, for only a few days now, I have already seen tangible signs of life returning as I've begun the prescribed fasting. Had it disrupt my grasping, disrupt the loud voices, disrupt my hurry, disrupt my up and to the right thinking all the time.
One example to me is a bit personal. It comes from recent bedtimes with my son, Baylor. After being sick and pampered for a time, he's become rather clingy at night. Was a great sleeper, now he's clingy. And it has irritated me. If after putting him down, I leave the room, he starts just throwing a fit. Wanting me to hold his hand while he falls asleep. And I've had things to do lately, you know, important things like scroll through my Facebook feed. It's hard to do that while I'm holding my son's hand. (laughs) But in one of my recent prayer times, I admitted to God that I walk around in kind of a constant state of fear of losing one of my boys. When Baylor was sick last week, a virus attacked his lungs and it caused some very scary breathing. And I had wild dreams of waking up, and that would be it. His breathing would have stopped in the night. He'd be gone. So I got on the internet, and I looked up stories of breathing problems. Find out how serious is this. Do I go to the hospital? When's the right time? I don't want to, you know, look too weak or whatever. But what I found were stories of actual parents with whom this, this worst nightmare had become reality. They had gone to sleep, and during the night, their children had stopped breathing. My heart broke for them, but my fear increased. What's interesting and backwards, though, is that the worry about my son's death came so easily. Seizing life with him? Not so much. For one of my gratitude stickies, though, I wrote, holding my son's hand. And now life has crept back into our relationship. Instead of being irritated, I sit and I think about how much I would miss this opportunity if I were to lose him. I think about parents that would toss everything they have, deny every desire, pursue infinitely downward paths for one moment to hold the hand of a child they've lost. And I'm irritating, hold, irritated holding minds. The rule of St. Benedict, chapter 447, says this. And a rule is an order, a way that these monks are supposed to live. And one of them is to have death present before one's eyes every day. Ooh. I know that sounds grand, but my father wrote a paper discussing this, and here's what he says. This may first appear as a dark spirituality, Because the mindfulness of death is not cultivated in our culture. And it's disguised when it intrudes on our lives. But the unwelcome thoughts of death need not depress or paralyze us. They can be a source of energy, bidding us to make the most of the opportunities we have in front of us before they disappear. Carpe diem. When we consider our mortality and that life is but a breath, we can be encouraged to show love to our loved ones more often, and not miss on opportunities to serve them and others. We can also develop a spirituality of prayer and meditation that asks God to teach us, to teach teach us the number of days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In keeping death just six inches from my face, I've actually found life with my son. 
And there is nothing like holding his hand at night. What's interesting is he hasn't even thrown fits the last couple of nights. He just calmly holds up his hand because he knows I'll be there. He can sense it. He knows that I want to be there to experience life with him. Well, that's the kind of reflection going on. And I'm only two days into Lent this year. And if you take the prescribed medicine, I believe the same will be true for you. We are, all of us, Adam and Eve's, prone to distraction, prone to grasping, living up and to the right at all times, as if death is not on the doorstep. But Jesus is calling us to be still, to fix our eyes on the realities of heaven springing up all around us, to fast for a time, but in preparation for greater feasts. And while this path is downward, while it's cruciform, while it's dying, it ends in the promise of resurrection for all. Life and life to the full wins the day. Life wins the day. May you know the heart of your Father who gives only good things. May you silence the voices of fear and listen to the one that gives life. May you trust in the fast as he prepares you for the feast. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.